We're going to be continuing through the book of Romans, kind of like we did uh, last week. You know, we are trying to understand a little bit of foundations of why this book is here, and by understanding that foundation, we can better understand what is in it, uh, because it is a powerful book. It has shaped what the church is uh, probably more than any other book. As I mentioned last week, it's probably the most commented on book, at least in the bookstores. If you're looking for commentaries on the book, maybe the Gospel of John would be right up there with it, but it's definitely uh, one of the most powerful writings in the New Testament. And so we want to see it. We want to see it clearly. Let's pray before we continue, though. Father, we come to you tonight, Lord, and ask once again that you would give us inside understanding with the purpose of recognizing, Lord, more of the truth that you have given to your people, Lord, and why you give us these things. They're here for us to not only know, but for those things to change our lives. The knowledge is meant to cause something to happen within us. We are meant to respond to the things that we learn in a way that produces a life that you desire. And so we ask again for clarity and help. Give me the ability to communicate clearly the things, especially as it is very informational, Lord. May it not become... um, just dragging out and boring. May it be something that still engages us to to think about why you are giving us these things. We do pray, Father, for those who aren't with us, Lord. We pray for those who are going through times of difficulty. I I lift up uh, my cousin, her husband, uh, Jeff, and just... uh, his issue and going into hospice now with the cancer and how difficult it is for her and for the family. And we pray that your love surround them and engulf them. And we thank you for all the people around them that are showing them support and love. And we pray, Lord, that you would use people in their lives to help them through this time, Father. And Lord, might you continue to be with Alex and his recovery I pray that the recovery is quick and complete. Um, We thank you again for him and just the blessing he's been to our community, Lord. May you bless him. And bless our time, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay. So last week we looked at a little bit of the introduction. We talked about Paul and where he has come from. We're going to talk about him a little bit more And we really want to frame the context of the book of Romans. And when we talk about the context, we want to talk about when it was written, uh, why was it written, what was Paul's intended audience, and why is that important? Why is it important to know who he's talking to as he's communicating so that when we read it, we can have clarity on what exactly he's talking about. And so context is going to be a real important thing. And as we go through the scripture, it's important that we understand context. 
everywhere you go in the books that you read. If you don't understand a context of the book, then it's real easy to take that text out of its context and then what happens is it becomes a pretext for what you want to say. And so you'll have a, a passage that's in uh, First Peter that says, by his stripes we were healed. And you just take that verse out of its context and all of a sudden it becomes a, a pretext for saying that anytime you see sickness that Jesus died for. But the context of that verse is sheep straying. It actually has to do with salvation. And so we see that the healing that is being spoken about is more than just a physical healing. It's including the healing of the soul, the restoration of a people. But if you don't have context, it's easy to read something in Scripture and assume it means whatever you want it to mean or maybe something you've heard it mean to someone else. And, and that happens, I believe, in the book of Romans uh, a few places. And if we don't understand the context, we'll get to some of the passages and we'll pull them out of that context and they'll start to mean something entirely different than what Paul or the Spirit of God through Paul was intending. And so we want to have context so that we don't become skewed, we don't misuse the scriptures. And it's important that we recognize this is vital. And so when I go through like a book of Genesis or like we went through the Gospel of John, as I study, I want to know the context. That's why in the whole beginning series of Genesis, we talked about the context. What was the writings for. Who was the writings for? It was written for the nation of Israel. Who wrote it? Moses wrote it. How did he write it? Well, we know that it was their oral tradition. We know there was probably some writings. But that helps us piece together why it's being framed. What is the intent of this book about? And we talked about that a little bit last week. So last week we talked about kind of the worldview. Remember, a worldview is what you look through. The worldview doesn't change. It's what it is. We talked about the worldview that Paul was living in, and we talked about three things that were important about the theology that Paul had. And it was a Jewish theology, but it was a Jewish theology that was being designed for a pagan, the Roman Greco world. And we talked about three things in that theology. We talked about monotheism. And we talked about the monotheism being different than the Stoic or Epicurean. Monotheistic being one God, hero Israel, the Lord our God is one. But it was a creative monotheistic belief. In other words, God is dynamically involved. He's not just out there somewhere. He's not distant. He's not a, the creation itself. He is the one responsible for the creation, and therefore responsible for us. And so this God is a God who has, if you want, morals. He's a God of purpose. And that was very different than the Stoic Epicurean or the pagan belief in a God or in many gods. And so that monotheistic view was very unique, but very important in what he was talking about. We talked about election and why election is so important in this theology. 
And what was election? What was the election about? Does anyone remember? Yes. God's choosing his people. What people? I mean, the Jews. Israel, right? The people, Israel, Jacob's seed. Abraham, Jacob, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. The election had to do with God choosing Israel to bring about the blessing to the entire world. Through you and through your seed, all the nations will be blessed. That was God's declaration to Abraham. God made a covenant with Abraham. And as we were going through Genesis, we talked about what a strange idea that was, that God would make a covenant with a man. How unusual. That was unlike the gods of that time. Those gods, again, you did not make a covenant. You tried to appease. And we talked about that to some extent when uh, Abraham was told to offer Isaac up. And then God himself provided, God would himself provide the sacrifice. God is the one who intervened. God is the one who stopped that sacrifice and said, I'll take care of it. And so election had to do with the nation of Israel. Israel was called by God to be God's people for the world. And then we talked about eschatology, a word I don't usually use. And eschatology means more than just the study of the last things. In this case, it was the restoration of God's elect people to fulfill their purpose. We talked about the nation of Israel was in exile, even as Paul was writing this. Their frame was, we're in exile. They could not be the fulfillment of that covenant, of that election, until they were out of exile. But they had problems. They've always had problems. Okay, They were captive in Egypt. They had problems with the, the family, with, with Jacob, with Esau. They, they had then a monarchy, and David, who was bringing and uniting the nation together, fell into a terrible sin. And this nation that was supposed to be the light of the world no longer was. They were taken captive, the Babylonians, and then in Paul's time, the Romans. There was the Persians. There was all these people who had taken them captive. Why? Because they were in exile. They were out of sorts with God. And God, being a God who cared, could not allow his people to go on being a bad example. So he dealt with them as a parent deals with children. The eschatology is when they would be out of exile and fulfill their purpose. And we talked about that. It's not happening yet. It wasn't happening at their time, but that's why Paul is writing these things, okay? So these three things are going to be paramount in the book of Romans. This topic, this, this theology is going to come up over and over again, and we'll see it playing out. And before we go further into that, we want to talk a little bit about Paul, a little bit more. We, we talked about how he was the apostle to the Gentiles and what that looked like a little bit. But remember, Paul was also a Pharisee. 
And a Pharisee was a very unique group of people. The Pharisees, uh, they weren't just a bunch of legalists that were trying to get people to do the right thing. The Pharisees were very heavily politicized, at least up until A.D. 70. And then when Rome came and just wiped out all of Jerusalem, things changed quite dramatically. But he was part of a group called the Shammites. That's S-H-A-M-M-A-I-T-E-S. And that was from one of the rabbis, Shammai, who was just very rigorous in what he wanted. And what I mean by that is they were ready for revolt. They weren't extremists that were going to cause riots, but almost to that point. And they were, they were very active in their belief. What was their belief? That we had the true God, that we were God's people, and that God wanted us to be in charge of the world. And we can't be in charge of the world with this Roman government over us. So what can we do to get rid of this Roman rule? How can we manipulate things so that we can gain more power? And so Paul was a Pharisee, and this was the mindset. And so Paul would say, as concerning a Pharisee, he was very zealous. What did he do in his zeal? He persecuted the church. He didn't just say, I'm going to go and have a debate. He actually targeted people who were leading the movement and imprisoning them. He was on his way to Damascus, which was quite a ways away from Jerusalem. And so that is Paul's mindset. That's who he was. That's how he saw things. He was zealous. He was persecuting the church. This was in line with what the Pharisees believed at that time. And so we get a mindset of who Paul was, where he was coming from, but then comes the conversion, that road to Damascus. And it's very important to understand where Paul was and where he had to go because that journey is part of what he's revealing through the book of Romans. Remember, as he was journeying to Damascus, there came a light, knocked him off the donkey. And then he, he responded to them. He said, you know, Saul, Saul, why do you persecute me? And he said, who are you, Lord? And he says, I am Jesus. It's hard to kick against those spikes, the goads. And in the pharisaical frame of mind, they had a methodology of prayer. And their methodology of prayer was something that they would do all the time. And what that was was to meditate on the throne chariot of God, they called it. And it was taken from Ezekiel chapter 1, where Ezekiel is taken up in that chariot. And what they would do is they would look up to imagine the throne chariot of God to have a recognition of who God is, that God would give them insight into who he was. And so as they would look towards the throne to get a glimpse of, as Ezekiel did, of who God was, on the road to Damascus, as Paul looked up to see the throne of God, to his horror, he saw the person, Jesus. And, and so his theology is now being rocked. 
because in his mind, for us to be the people of God, we had to get out of exile. And here was someone who these Christians were calling the anointed one, the Messiah, but he was crucified. That makes no sense to my theology. How can I be in charge in the last days if the anointed one is crucified? This wasn't just that he realized he was a sinner and needed to be justified by faith. This wasn't just that he was wrong and Christians were right. This wasn't just that he received a commission by God, go and and tell people about me. What Paul realized on the road to Damascus, and this is real key to the book of Romans, what Paul realized on the road to Damascus was what God was supposed to be doing at the end of history, he had done for Jesus in the middle of history. Let me say that again. What Paul realized on the road to Damascus was that what God was supposed to be doing at the end of history, he had done for Jesus in the middle of history. So this eschatology that he's talking about, here is the creation and here is the end. God had done all these things. The nation of Israel is here under Roman rule, but they were going to be delivered from this and then they were going to be in charge. But you see, Rome was still ruling. Herod was still king. They still had the high priest and everything going on. But all of a sudden, God says, nope, I have fulfilled my purpose in the person of Jesus while history was still going on. So his eschatology had to shift from one day the nation of Israel was going to be in charge and going to bless the people. They weren't blessing all the nations, but now the person of Jesus was. Israel believed that at the end of history, God would vindicate them from their oppressors, raise them from the dead. Literally and metaphorically, we talked about Ezekiel, the dead bones and being restored. And that was a type of resurrection. The first thought of resurrection that we see And so that's what we see. And so then in Acts chapter 1, when the disciple says, Lord, will you at this time restore the nation of Israel? What were they thinking? Is it time? Will you restore the nation of Israel? You, you, You don't understand. Because restoration is taking place now. And you want the times and seasons, but you don't need to know about that. Go. And he sends them out. Why? Because you are the restoration that's going to take place. And that's going to, again, be a part of the theme that's taking place in Paul. Paul realizes that on the road to Damascus, what God was doing for the nation of Israel, he did for one person, Jesus alone. So who does that make Jesus? Don't just think in Christian terms. What that does is that makes Jesus the incarnation of Israel, which is the anointed one, which is the Messiah. But it's real important that we recognize that Jesus is the fulfillment of Israel because God established a covenant with Abraham. God 
set this people aside to be the light of the world. They weren't. Did God fail? Are they of use? No use to him? No, God fulfilled it in the person of Jesus. And so Jesus is the incarnation of the nation Israel. He is the bearer of Israel's destiny. What Israel was supposed to be, Jesus actually was, which points to, again, the king, the anointed one, the Messiah. And so when Christians spoke of Christ as God's anointed, Paul wouldn't make sense of this because, again, a crucified Messiah made no sense but when he discovered on, or what he discovered on the road to Damascus is that somehow Jesus took Israel's destiny and he fulfilled Israel's destiny. And the cross was now the plan for Israel, the person, because the nation was shown up in the person. And so the cross is now the destiny by which God would fulfill his covenant with the nation, but it was fulfilled through the incarnation of that person, Jesus, who represents that nation. Following? Okay. It's important. The whole book of Romans hinges on this covenant relationship. And if we lose sight of this, we start taking things out of their context and we start creating our own framework that they are going to live out in. And so the cross now is the plan that God has for Israel, the person. Paul believed that Israel had now been vindicated in principle in the person of Jesus himself. They're vindicated. How? In principle, because of who Jesus is. He is the fulfillment. He is the incarnation of the nation Israel. And so they're vindicated because he has taken that responsibility for them. His whole eschatology has been changed. No longer is the old age exile, the vindication of the new age where Israel is in power. Now the new age breaks in while the old age continues. Now it's breaking in and Herod's still king, Caesar's still emperor, everything is going on, but everything has changed. And so you start thinking of Jesus' parables. And Jesus is talking about the end times, but he's not talking about a way that the people would connect with. Those parables, the kingdom of heaven is like. Well, no, the kingdom of heaven is supposed to be like this. And Jesus said the kingdom of heaven is now with you. It's near, it's here. It's in your midst. It's in you. The kingdom of heaven is like a person and it's something that is breaking in. He reforms their whole understanding of what the end time was supposed to be. It's not over here. It's happening now. And so the parables that they had a hard time understanding were dealing with this primarily. This understanding of what God is doing right here, right now, in these people. And so this age is when the Gentiles would be blessed. Well, they're not being blessed at the time by the nation of Israel. They are now being blessed by the nation of Israel 
because of what God did in Israel through the incarnation of what Israel was supposed to be, the person of Jesus. And what this is doing is taking the cross of Christ and it's making it very Jewish. This is connected to the promise God made with this people. And so that is going to be an important dynamic for the Gentiles to understand. He's also taking this cross and it's becoming, in a sense, a shame to the nation of Israel because you're not going to be who you think you are. God had to fulfill what you could not. And so it's an offense to the Jew and to the Gentile. Again, something that will play on later on. God had talked about this. In Isaiah 49, verse 6, it says, He says, It is too small a thing for you to be my servant to restore the tribes of Jacob and bring bring back those of Israel I have kept. I will also make you a light for the Gentiles that my salvation may reach to the ends of the earth. This was a promise to the nation of Israel. This promise is fulfilled to the nation of Israel in the person of Jesus. It's not going to happen in the future. It happened in Christ. And so it's important to understand because there's a lot of confusion also that we'll talk about the nation of Israel. What's their role? Are they still God's chosen people? Are they different? Are they, are they supposed to, you know, a completed Jew is now a Christian Jew? Are they different than a Gentile follower of Christ? Is there supposed to be a difference? And we'll talk about that as well. So when does this all happen? When does this fulfillment, when does God bring salvation to the ends of the earth? Now. In Jesus. It happens here. Even while... The rest of the world is continuing. God is doing something new. And the new creation, the new birth, that's all part of what God is doing. Paul's commission to the Gentiles is connected to the Jewish theology that he knew, that he was zealous for. He then translates it to those who are around. And and Paul could do this better than anyone else. I mean, because Paul knew their belief system. He was zealous for it. It's kind of ironic, right? This Just like God. God says, oh, you're zealous. I could use that. But first we need to change some things. We need to deal with it. And then Paul recognizes that his zeal was in the wrong direction. And he brought humility to him. I was persecuting the church. I'm the chief of sinners. He recognizes that it's not by my merit. It's not because I'm Jewish. It's not because I have the right as Israel to to have this role because I was wrong. It's by God's grace. And so he's the apostle to the Gentiles because he is bringing the truth of who God is, the understanding of this, fulfilled in Christ now to the place where the whole world will understand. And even though he's the apostle to the Gentiles, he is bringing the clarity of this message to Jewish believers as well. 
And it's real important because that's what's necessary in a world that is very, at this time, fragmented. So the apostle to the Gentiles, and he's dealing with now an evangelism. He's going to reach the Gentiles. What does that look like? Because Paul would say, I'm going first to the Jews. The promise has come true, but not like you thought. And so he would go to the synagogues first. Whenever he traveled, he'd go to a synagogue. And he said, hey, I got news for you. Yeah, I know what you're thinking, but... What's happened is taken place in Jesus. Because of your sin, you can't fulfill what God needs to do. God did it in the person of Jesus. And they didn't like that. So they'd kick him out, like they did in Ephesus when you go through Acts. And so Paul rented a hall next door to the synagogue and then had some meetings there at night, right? And so he's, he's causing this truth to make its way in, and it's causing a lot of ruckus. He's telling pagans now that they need to accept this Jewish message that God had revealed himself to their people, that God had chosen them to be the people that would bring the truth to the world, and that was fulfilled through the person of Jesus. And what that means to a pagan, it means living, leaving your family unity, leaving your culture. Their culture was very pagan in their beliefs. So it might even mean leaving your family business if the business was tied in some way to idolatry. And so they're telling the pagan world, you need to recognize the truth that God has revealed to his people, which was no small task. It was something that would cause a lot of Problems. It would cause a lot of division in their families and in their life. And so when scripture talks about being brothers and sisters in Christ, it really meant that. It wasn't just somewhere you would go and hang out with some people. It was, this became your family because it took you away from that other family. And so this was something that marked some major changes in your life. And so Jesus would say, if you're going to follow me, if anyone loves me, they have to hate father, mother, sister, brother, anyone else compared to me. What's he talking about? He's talking about this is going to change the whole dynamic. Why? Because that's the world they lived in. For the Jewish people and for the pagans. They lived in the world that was encompassed by beliefs and breaking out of those beliefs for the Gentile as well as for the Jew would lead them somewhere else and they would be then a new race of people. You're no longer a Jew. You're no longer a Greek. You're no longer slave or free, male or female. You have become a new race of people. You've become a new identity of people. And so what Paul literally is doing when he's starting churches, he's not just church planting, he's planting new colonies for new civilizations of life to break into that world. And you see, that's why 
the faith in Christ changed the world because it changed the people. They didn't just go and have a new belief. It changed who they were. It changed their identity. You no longer are a Jew that's connected just to your heritage. You're no longer a Roman connected to your heritage. You're now connected to the person of Christ. And now you are brothers. Even though you come from different ethnicities, you are now one in Christ. Oh, my goodness, what that would do to the people at that time, it blew their mind. It was unfathomable. This was something new. It's incredible how much race still plays a role in culture all over the world. It doesn't matter where you go. You'll see it if you're... Argentinian right now, you're, you're celebrating no matter where you are in the world. If you're Brazilian, you're not. Sorry. If you're German, no matter where you are in the world, if you're aware of the World Cup, you're celebrating. Why? Because it's my people. I was rooting for the Italians. I'm Italian. Yes, I've never been to Italy. I don't speak Italian, but it's my people. No, I just like the food. You know, it, it's... You just automatically want something you can connect to. How many wars because of race, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Europe, whether it's the American Indian, whether it doesn't matter. I mean, you've got that same Aryan race and you've got problems still in this century, all because of race. And Paul is dealing with racism that could be paralleled to anything his time. And he's saying, you're no longer defined by your ethnicity. You are now defined by faith in the person, Christ, who is the fulfillment of the Jewish prophets and scriptures. And he is there for the whole world. So Paul was founding and establishing churches. He was establishing colonies of the new human race. It wasn't a new ethnic group, a new fraternity. The God who created the world had established a new way of being human. There's neither Jew nor Greek, slave, free, male nor female. And now we're seeing the whole idea of what it means to be justified by faith as compared to your ethnicity your tradition. Paul had been in Antioch when he went to Jerusalem. It's about four or five day journey. It's north of Jerusalem. And Antioch was a major social and cultural center at that time. And it was one of the first places where the Gentiles became Christians. And they had some radical problems because Christianity was already moving among the Jewish people, but now you have these Gentiles. And so in Galatians chapter 2, Paul talks about confronting Cephas, Peter, face to face. Why did he have to do that? What, what was he talking? He had this contention because the Jewish Christians that came from Jerusalem down south from James, the pastor, and came up to Antioch. And then you had the Gentile Christians who were there, came together, but the Jewish Christians would not 
eat at the same table with the Gentile Christians. Christianity was on the verge of being split into two tiers. You have the Jewish Christians, you have the Gentile Christians. We will hold to our law and our traditions, and you can stay in your pagan ways, but we are going to require you to change if we're going to eat together. And Paul stops it, and he confronts Peter to his face, and he says, you weren't able to fulfill your part. Are you going to require the Gentiles now to do what you never could? See what he's saying? You guys couldn't do it, and you're going to ask them to do what you never were able to make it to? No, Jesus is the one who made this possible. And the first account of justification by faith that the world ever saw was there at Antioch, where Faith meant that the Jews and the Gentiles have to eat at the same table. Isn't that cool? Justification by faith. We have to eat together. You and me are now justified by the person of Christ. We are the new people. And nothing else matters. Your ethnicity doesn't matter. Your traditions don't matter. This is where you become brothers and sisters by faith, not by anything else, not by your works of the law, not by your belief system. You become brothers and sisters because of Jesus, by faith. And that's what is happening. Now imagine the task that Paul is doing. He is connecting two worlds, literally, to this new faith. And he did it without coffee. That's amazing to me. I mean, how did he have that energy without caffeine? It's incredible. But you see, they are brothers and sisters now by faith. And so then in Acts chapter 15, the Jewish council If this really was the new human race that God has established when he raised Jesus to be the new human being in the resurrection, then there is no more room for racial distinction. In the church, there is no place for that. If this is the new human race, then we are one in Christ. That's what that means. And so you're not defined by that old belief system, by that ethnicity. You're defined by the person, Jesus. And so now we get a glimpse of what being a Christian means. What having an identity to Christ is about. It's to be a new human being. And that hasn't changed. Here we are thousands of years later, and we still have the opportunity to show the new human race. And it's not, I'm American, I'm Jewish, I'm from the Philippines, I'm from this country. Your nationality, it doesn't matter compared to Christology, who Christ is and who we are in Christ. And everything else has to be under that. So patriotism is fine, but it's not 
the identity that I belong to. I am a follower of Christ before I am anything else. And I can sing I'm proud to be American. At least I know I'm free. You know, I mean, that's great, but I'm free in Christ. That's the freedom. That's the identity. And what would happen if we started having that identity again? Seeing ourselves in this light instead of in some other frame. Maybe the reason the power has been diminished in the followers of Christ is because the identity is missing and recognition of who we are and who we belong to. And so as they meet there in Jerusalem, they say, okay, we need to make a new strategy. Okay, and in Romans, he's establishing this new strategy. How do you establish that? Taking things that you can do to bridge the gaps. And so now Paul is in Rome and he's trying to bridge these two worlds. The Jewish Christians, the Jewish believers have a lot of skepticism against these Gentile Christians. I don't know if we can trust them. What's Paul going to do? How how is he going to use his understanding to bring this together? One of the things he does is he gets money. He collects money from the Gentiles and he says, we're going to take it to the Jews. In Romans 15, he talks about that. We're going to go minister to the saints in Jerusalem. Pray that the gift would be acceptable. Why wouldn't it be acceptable? Because they might say, no, it's coming from the Gentiles. It's tainted. We don't want their money. Who knows? Maybe it was used in some idolatrous worship or something. You know, and sometimes that could even happen like if someone won money in Vegas and they went to a pastor at a church and said, hey, I won, you know, a few thousand dollars in Vegas. I want to give it to the church. I'd say, praise God. (laughs) But there are some pastors that would say, oh, no, no. I don't want that money because it, it's tainted. And that's what would be happening in Jerusalem. And so Paul, when he's taking money there, it, it is to help those in need, but it's also to show the Gentile believers that they are here for the Jewish believers and to show the Jewish believers that your brothers and sisters are caring from you, caring for you from Rome. So there's a lot going on through this book and what Paul is doing. He's more than just writing some things down. He's being very strategic, and he's trying to bridge this new humanity. So, why does he write the book of Romans? We kind of included that, trying to bridge these things. You know, at the very beginning, in chapter 1, in fact, let's turn there, and I promise you next week we will actually be in the book. But if you turn to Romans chapter 1, We'll just read a few verses, starting at verse 8. In verse 8 through 15, it says, First, I thank God, my God, through Jesus Christ for all of you, because your faith is being reported for all the world. It's being reported all over the world. God, whom I serve in my spirit in preaching the gospel of his Son, is my witness how constantly I remember you in my prayers at all times, and I pray that now at last, by God's will, the way may be opened for me to come to you. 
I long to see you so that I may impart to you some spiritual gift to make you strong. That is, that you and I may be mutually encouraged by each other's faith. I do not want you to be unaware, brothers and sisters, that I have planned many times to come to you, but have been prevented from doing so until now, in order that I might have a harvest among you, just as I have heard among the other Gentiles. I am obligated both to Greeks and non-Greeks, both to the wise and foolish. That is why I am so eager to preach the gospel also to you who are in Rome. And so that sounds like, oh, that's a nice, smooth, easy understandable reason of why he wrote the book of Romans. Then why is it verse 16 to the end of the book so deep? See, this is an address. He's bringing some small understanding. I want to impart to you something, but then the well gets very deep that he digs. And, And there's two basic thoughts of why Paul is writing the book of Romans. I mean, they vary in degrees, but they kind of can be summed up to two different means. One group believes that Paul is at the end of his ministry. He's summing up his theology, and in retrospect, he's writing it down kind of in a systematic writing. And so he's going to deal with sin. He's going to deal with grace. He's going to deal with justification by faith. Then you got chapter 9 to 11. We're not sure what he's dealing with. And then he's going to conclude... And then there's chapter 16 that says all these people that he wants you to know about. But it's kind of like this systematic theology that he's talking about. And that's one group. But there's a problem with that because in the epistle he says he's wanting to go to Spain. Which means he's not done. He's still wanting to move forward. Second group of thought is that something is happening in Rome and something in, in Rome is motivating him to write this out, which forces us to examine the text to find out what's happening. Is he writing because of political reasons? In chapter 13, he addresses some political things. Is he writing to deal with the tension between the Jews and the Gentiles? Chapter 14, he deals with that. But again, we have to take what Paul says in chapter 15, about going to Spain seriously. Because if Paul is going to Spain, he's leaving the east, saying he's completed his work in the east, wanting to go westward, and Rome is his place to go to move that direction. And so it very well could be that Paul is trying to establish a base in Rome, just like he did in Antioch, where he can go and from there move the gospel forward up towards Spain. And if that's the case, then what he's trying to do is get support from people who are there so that he can have, in a sense, a mission base to go out from. And his method that he would continually go out would be to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And we'll talk about that next week because the gospel was revealed to the Jew first and then to the Greek. And we're going to talk about what that means a little bit more in depth. But why it's important for Paul to reach the Jewish people, why would that matter? Why, Why is he making that an important thing to these Gentiles? After all, the Jews were hostile against the Gentiles. And even in Thessalonians, Paul talks about you know, the end, you know, that the Jews are under this judgment of God. Well, then just let them go. Why worry about them? 
Why not just continue going on? And you see, there was very strong anti-Semitic opinion, just like the Jews were very strong in their prejudice against the Gentiles. And what happened in Antioch, Paul was wanting to make sure it didn't happen in reverse towards the Jews. And so what he's trying to do is establish a unity in this community so that he could go forward and reach the world, Jews and Gentiles. Because the Jewish people were all over the known world. Yeah, you know, they would congregate more in Jerusalem, but they were in Rome, they were in Spain. Many Jews became Roman soldiers. Some people think speculation that Paul's father might have been a Roman soldier. And that's why he was a Roman citizen, because after the father would die, they would get their citizenship. We don't know. But Paul is wanting to reach the world, and he goes to the synagogues, and he's doing it intentionally. He wants the Gentile people to know the history of where they're coming from, because this is very much a part of who Christ is. In Rome... Some significant things happen right when Paul was writing this. In 49 AD, Claudius, the emperor, expelled all the Jews from Rome. No doubt some still hung around. He probably didn't clear out all of them. But there was a major cleaning out of the city, and it was due to riots. And there are some writings that believe that the riots were in regards to the Jewish non-believers and the pagan believers or the Jewish believers fighting amongst each other. And so they started these riots. And so Claudius says, enough, no Jews are allowed in Rome. And imagine the tension that would cause. Okay, you know, what if we said, okay, there's no Mexicans allowed in Upland? Yeah, in Upland? Yes. <laughs> really? I'll have to hear about that story. Yeah. I mean, and we've seen that kind of ethnic issues in, in history. I mean, ethnic cleansing, Serbs and the Hutus and the Tutsis in Africa. I mean, there's things that happen where this happens. Now, they're just getting... You're not allowed here. Now, a decree like that by a Roman emperor was set until he died. And once he died, then that decree was lifted. When did Claudius die? Claudius died in 54 AD. When did Paul write Romans? In 55, maybe 56 AD. And so you see now a very historical, poignant point. Jews aren't allowed in Rome. So, for five years, the Gentile Christians are having it pretty easy. They're eating bacon in the morning. You know, they're doing things the way they're used to doing. They're enjoying themselves. And all of a sudden, the decree is lifted and the Jews start coming back. And all of a sudden, you start dealing with that tension. Hey, what are you doing? What are you eating? Bacon, you want some? Can't eat bacon. Don't you know what the law says? What do you mean the law? You know, you guys, we were doing fine without you. Why don't you just go on? You have your church, we'll have our church. And you start seeing 
I mean, gosh, we can't even agree over music, right? I don't go to that church, man. The music stinks. They dress, you know, a certain way. And so imagine the tension that's happening here in what's supposed to be this new humanity of people. So the Gentile Christians who lived in Rome now have this influx of Jewish Christians and they're in danger of disregarding them and just moving on, you know, and dealing with things their own. Sam, can I ask you a question? Yeah. Are you using um, the terms pagan believers and Gentile Christians synonymously? Um, if I am, those who were pagan who became Christian or Gentiles who became Christian. But not pagan. They can't be pagans and still believers. Right. So when you say pagan believers, you mean believers. Yeah, Gentile believers. Pagan to the Jewish mind would be anyone who's not Jewish. And so I should be more clarifying in that. It should be Gentile believers, not pagan, because pagan is a belief system. Okay. Actually, yeah, pagan actually meant uh, like a person who lives out in the farmlands. That's the original definition, because in the cities, people heard the gospel. Where they didn't hear the gospel was out in the country. And so a pagan was actually a country dweller. That's what the word really means. But we associate it with a belief system. So... Uh, pagan, I mean Gentile, who believed. But we can have pagans who are just believe in other gods. Yeah, yeah, we can have pagans who believe in the many gods, who believe in you know the Greek mythology, and then you have the Jewish in their tradition. Yes, good point. Thank you. So the Gentile believers, the Jewish believers, come together. There's tension. There's frustration. Uh, um, and if Paul is going to set up a base here and move from here into the rest of the world, he's going to need to develop a whole new missionary work from where he can base that on. And he needs them to see and believe that the gospel is to the Jew and to the Gentile. And so dealing with this racial tension is very important, not only to Paul, not only to the book of Romans, but to God. And this book is being written so that we can understand those things. And so the gospel then is humiliating the Jews with the work of the cross. It's humiliating the Gentiles with the Jewishness of its message. It demands that we all are brought into this area of disobedience where we recognize our error, our sin, so that God may have mercy on all. And the gospel, a gospel leaves no room for human boasting. You can't boast because of your ethnicity, because of what you believe, because you keep the law. You can't boast because of anything about yourself. No human culture can take the credit. It is the work of God alone. What God has done... He has done himself in the person of Christ. And that's why Paul says it is the work of God, lest anyone boast. By grace you are saved. God did this. It wasn't because of who you were. It wasn't because of what you've done. You didn't get there. God brought us here. And so that's very much a part of that and what is taking place. And so that this God is the creator of the world, that monotheistic God, God made a promise to Abraham and his seed that through him all the nations would be blessed. That's the election. And a God who in Jesus and the Spirit 
has amazingly, incredibly, mind-bogglingly just been true to his promise that he made, has fulfilled that. And Romans is Paul's theological explanation about the covenant faithfulness of God. Yes. Well, the reason they couldn't be perfect was because of the sin. And so it's kind of, it goes hand in hand. You see, God had called these people to be something, but they never were. Yeah, so the cross was always in God's plan. And so God's predestinated plan always included the cross. The cross was Israel's future. Well, there and there's a whole lot of thought on that matter as well. Um, but the 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 obvious point is they couldn't. The obvious point is they failed. The obvious point is we fail. The obvious point is we all are in need of God's help because we are broken, and we are broken because of the Adamic nature. You know that sin. The Adamic. Nature is something that is addressed, you know, the first Adam. And then who's Jesus? He's the last Adam. What is that connecting? That's connecting him again to Israel's history. He's fulfilling what Israel was supposed to be but couldn't be. That's who Jesus is. Yeah, there is the genealogy that traces back to Abraham because that's who God made the promise to. After the fall, after all these things, God says, hey, you... I'm going to use you, and through you, I'm going to bless the world. Well, it's to get to Jesus. I mean, that's why the genealogies are there in the gospel, to tell us how Jesus is connected. You see, more important than all the people that it goes through, it's that it was to the promise that God made to his people, to Abraham. Jesus is connected to that promise. And so all the other people, you know, and that's why, again, I mean, Matthew talks about, you know, the women who are in there who weren't of Jewish descent, you know, uh, Rahab, uh, Ruth, uh, Bathsheba, you know, and so those people. Um, yes. Yeah, Romans is Paul's theological explanation about the covenant faithfulness of God. If we don't have the idea of covenant relationship and God's faithfulness, we will miss most of what is there actually being said in Romans because it's connected to that. Because then how could God have succeeded if Israel failed? Well, if Jesus is the incarnation of Israel, then they didn't fail. And that's what Paul gets to throughout this book. Therefore, you, the church there in Rome, Gentile and Jew alike, need to take part in the ongoing mission and unity of the church. And that's what Paul is going to be bringing about. You, the church, Jew, Gentile, are to take part in the ongoing mission, which God is going to use, going hopefully up into Spain, what his desire was, we never know if he made it or not, in the unity of the church. If Paul could deal with this in Rome, then from Rome he could head west to the rest of the world. And so Paul, in my opinion, had no plans of stopping. He was going to continue taking this gospel 
But Rome was very central to his plan in taking that gospel further. And Rome was very significant because here you have very extreme situation where you have the Gentile believers and you have now the Jewish believers coming together and there is that tension and he's wanting to deal with that to make them aware that they are now a new human race of people. And so he's going to deal a lot with those things later on when he talks about Jacob have I loved, Esau have I hated. That's connected to the covenant faithfulness of God. It's not saying that God likes some people and doesn't like some people. It's dealing with this topic very clearly, very directly. And if you don't see that, you'll come up with some theology. Any questions on this? Next week we will be in chapter 1. But I wanted to set the foundation as strong as I could before we jumped in. And we're going to go pretty quick through the book. I'm not going to just do a couple of verses. It might be, you know, maybe a couple of weeks for one chapter, but it's not going to take us a year or so to get through the book of Romans. Well, because God said that when the serpent beguiled Eve and he cursed the serpent and he said her, what did he say? Um, said, I put enmity between your seed and her seed and he will crush your head, but you will bruise his heel. And so they believe that that was a reference to that one day through her, the curse was going to be broken and lifted. And so that's the thought that was there. And and remember, we don't have the complete dialogue of what happened with Eve. You know, we're getting a story that's supposed to tell a certain truth. And if we try and make it too much of a, okay, this is exactly everything that's going on, we lose the point of the story. And so a lot of people do. So is there, can anyone just interpret it the way they want to? What defines how we interpret it? Well, that's what we talked about last week. Well, the Spirit gives us insight, but remember there has to be historical understanding. We have to have a recognition of what Paul is trying to say, who he's trying to say it to, just like we have to know who's Moses talking to, who's he writing to, what's the framework that he's saying those things in. If you don't look at these things in their proper context, you can get out of context. You know, Paul has something in mind as he's writing the book of Romans. We don't have a diary. Dear diary, today I'm going to Rome. This is what I hope to convey. We just have the text. But we have a lot of knowledge on Paul. He was the Pharisee. We have a lot of knowledge on the culture, what their belief system was. We have a lot of knowledge on the Jewish belief system. You know, as you go through and you look at the nation of Israel and throughout the Old Testament, there is this overwhelming thing of hope. Hope one day, one day, one day the Messiah is going to come. One day God is going to set things right. One day there's this hope and expectancy. When you go through the 
teachings of Christ and through the Christian history, what you have is joy. Joy. There, there is still longing, but it's more joy and a fulfillment. And that's kind of encompassing what's happened. Why did the gospel spread? Because, you know, we had to change our old beliefs. We had to disassociate with our family. No, that's difficult. Why did it spread? Because, oh my gosh, I am free. I have a relationship with the living God that's alive. And it was so overwhelming that they could not contain it. They had to share it. And so it spread throughout the Jewish world, throughout the pagan world. This is incredible. And, you know, we have a lot of information that helps us understand the context of things. And the reason you get into problems is when you take those texts out of context. And it happens. You know, we don't have all the information. So some of the things we look at and we say, I think it means this. You know, but then you get people who, you know, will take the scripture and twist it to say, you know, we need to defend Jerusalem and we need to go out and kill the Muslims. That happened. You know, you have the Inquisition, you have the Crusades. How did that happen? They used the scriptures, they twisted them. How do you know they twisted them? Because we know the context, we know what it says. You have the same thing, people using it to get money or bring healing. You know, if you just give $20, the Lord says he'll heal you. It doesn't say that. Well, I can pull a few passages out and get something that looks like that. But I'm taking it out of context. I'm making it mean what I want it to mean. You know, And so the problem happens when you don't understand that. And again, what happens also is we start to believe our traditions. Yeah. Our tradition says the Bible says this. And so now I believe the Bible says this. Why? Because that's what I've been taught. And I shared that last week. You know, the word of God is alive and powerful. What is the word of God? Well, it's the Bible. How can it be? It wasn't written at the time that this was penned. Why do you say it's the Bible? Well, because you've heard how many teachers teach it's the Bible. Now, is that a bad thing? Oh, it's your, your, no, I mean, it's just not quite accurate. Does it include that? Yeah, definitely. All scripture is God-breathed. But you see, our tradition clouds and now I hear someone say the word of God I know oh it's the Bible well that's not what the writer of Hebrews meant when he said all scripture you know or no when he said the word of God is alive and powerful sharper than two edged sword he meant I believe the gospel does it include the scripture well now we can look back the scripture declares the gospel so I'm not saying the scripture is bad it's just that's not what that meant our tradition, though, tells us, oh, that means this. And so we got to be careful. we got to look and see, well, how is this lining up to how things really were so we don't make up our own belief. And a lot of things, I think, come from, you know, uh, 16th century Reformation theology. The Reformation theology, they didn't have the insight that we do to the Roman world or to the Jewish world. A lot of what they had came from the Roman church. That was a little skewed. And so then their understanding of some things might be skewed. So anyway, I think I mentioned that last week also. Any questions? Okay. Well, let's pray. 
Father, as we get ready to jump into this book, Lord, I, I pray it would be with anticipation to see how this man you called was so powerful and so instrumental in doing so much and how important a role this book plays in the work that you did through him. And so, Lord, I desire to get into it. I desire to talk about these things more. Again, help us to keep this framework in mind as we go through it. Help us to remember what Paul is dealing with. Help us to understand the the struggles that he's facing, the issues that are there, the tension that is there in these people that he is dealing with, with the Gentiles, with the Jewish, who now become brothers and sisters in Christ. Lord, help us to keep these things in mind as we move forward, and may we benefit from these things. May it bring a sense of renewal in our own hearts, recognizing that just as you called them, you you call us, and you're calling us to be this new humanity. And our identity is in you, Jesus. And so may that swell up within us. May we have a recognition of how important that is, and may we identify ourselves with that truth. Again, thank you for this time. In Jesus' name, amen.